Now, last week, we saw how God viewed us as his children. And uh, it was a very good practical lesson. And we're going to find that in John. We're going to find some practical things. And then, boy, John is just such an incredible uh, book with so many things in it. And, um, you know, and we looked at uh, how we should view him. And I told you last week that this is the number one problem God's people have. They don't know how God looks at them, and they don't know how they're to look at God. And when, when a person solves that dilemma in their life, then that's when the relationship really takes off. And we saw that fundamentally, uh, we have spiritually two different families. We have the children of light, the Bible talks about, and the children of darkness. And I talked about John chapter 8, verse 44 last week, where it says that, for an unsaved person, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, but there's no truth in him, because he's a liar and a father of him. So uh, we, we know that there's a spiritual side of that. And, uh, and yet, uh, we also know that uh, uh, those of us from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that are born uh, of God, born again, we know that now we're into God's family. I've never understood, well, I guess I do, but I was preaching years and years and years ago, uh, and I was in a church someplace, I didn't remember where it was, and I was talking about this very thing, and I I made a point, because I was a salvation message, and I made a point to tell them that if they're here this morning, uh, and they're unsaved, that their family name spiritually is Lucifer, the devil, and I use John 8, 44. And after the sermon, and I went on a little bit, you know, and after the sermon, a little lady came up to me, and she was a little upset, and she said, I want you to know that I took great offense at what you said this morning uh, about, uh, you know, if, uh, if you're unsaved, that your, your family's name is the devil. And, you know, and I said, well, ma'am, I totally understand that, and said, I can sympathize with you. I said, I heard that same thing about 15 years ago, and it really upset me, and I would suggest to you to do what I did. I changed families. That's all you have to do. And uh, it's a thing where uh, those of us who are born of God, uh, you're, you're now a new creature in Christ Jesus. And then I showed you how that years ago, uh, we've been talking a lot about character studies, you know, and uh, I showed you how that in my own life uh, years ago, um, uh, I studied the Apostle John. And I realized how important his writings were, but how important he was. And then I showed you that he's the greatest type of us as a Christian in the New Testament. Fundamentally, I know you have a lot of guys and women who are great pictures of, and I'm not taking that away, but if you want the two that has the most info of where it's at, one of the Old Testament will be Abraham, and the other one will be John in the New Testament. Two complete pictures of the Christian life and I might add the Christian walk. Then I showed you, we talked about the five wisdom books that John writes in the New Testament and how that they will match the five wisdom books in the Old Testament and how John has a complete perspective of the Old Testament and the New Testament just as we should. He's an incredible study. And then I I, uh, I showed you the great study uh, all the way through the Bible versus light versus darkness and how it was man who ruined God's plan by his own choosing, you know, his free will. You know, there's a heresy out there today that 
many, many people get caught up in, and it's called Calvinism, or uh, basically uh, uh, sometimes it's called uh, Reformation theology. And basically it is a bunch of people who uh, don't know anything about the Bible that believes that God chose some people to be saved, hence predestined them to be saved, Long before Genesis 1, God sat down and said, okay, you go to heaven, you go to hell, you go to heaven, you go to hell, you two go to heaven, and and that's what it is. And they believe that everything in your life is predestined by the sovereignty of God. And that God is sovereign, and therefore he has pre-decreed everything that's going to happen to you. I was out walking with a predestinator one time and we were talking and it was winter time and we were walking down a thing there and he slipped on ice and fell flat on his back. He got up and he said, wow, I'm glad that's over. (laughs) See, he thought he was predestined to slip on the ice. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Nothing like, nothing like a good pandemic find out where a person is really at with what they say to believe. I mean, we've seen it on our own church. Those who claim they love the Bible could trust the promises when the pandemic hit. They're off in the woods someplace. But the Calvinists, they're, they're, it's really funny with them. If you really believe that you're predestined to get it, you're going to get it. Wearing a mask isn't going to change a thing. And if you're not predestined to get it, then you're not going to get it. But they go through the same, oh, there are some that won't leave their house. There are some that, that, that just, because they, it just shows you how stupid your theology is. If you really believe predestination and everything is by the sovereignty of God, then if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. And if you're not, you're not. You don't have to even mess with a mask. Go wherever you want to go. Do whatever you want to do. It's sovereign in God's hand. Heresy will always expose itself when real truth of the Word of God based on the promises show up. And, uh, you know, I mean, without even getting into it with any kind, of, any kind of depth, you'll find that talking about free will, you'll find free will mentioned 17 times in the Bible. Predestination, you only find four times, and not in one of those four is it even remotely connected with somebody's salvation. So it was free will that threw man into the mess. He chose what he wanted to do over what God had for him, <laughs> like we all do today. Man chose to disobey God, and through that, the whole world got thrown into darkness. Light versus darkness. And then God, through his love, what did he do? He turned the lights back on. God is light, and uh, the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness not comprehended it not. And when he came back down here and died on the cross, then he turned the lights on, and now we know that whosoever will can be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I had a college guy one time, years ago, I used to go into colleges and I'd do presentations on uh, God or the stars and gospel and the stars and all that stuff. And we'd get into some really good discussions. And uh, a lady asked me a question about salvation and she had set me up. She's one of those ladies, you know, that was saved and she just wanted to use me to get it out, which I really appreciate. And so the college professor was sitting over here and he said, well, let me ask you a question. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, so you're telling me that sin came into the world 
And God allowed that sin to come into the world. He could have stopped it, but he allowed it to come into the world. Is that correct? And I knew where he was going. I mean, see, that's, that's college professor stupidity 101. But I'll play along because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead with this one and I'm going to knock you out with this one. So I said, yes, sir, that's, that's exactly right. You're, you're very good. That's very perceptive of you. Feed his ego a little bit. And he said, well, he says, if that's true, he says, then if God allowed sin to come into the world, then sin is here because God put it here. How does God ever judge a man and send him to this place you call hell? And if you're listening to this now, tune in next week because somebody will send you a letter from hell and you can figure it out yourself. And he says, how can God really send anybody, judge them and send them to hell if he's responsible for allowing sin to come into the world in the first place. How does he do that? You know, and he thought that was something very, he said, he, he said that like he thought it was a profound thing to say. And I said, well, that's very good. I said, and here's the answer to that. <clears throat> You're right, God did allow sin to come into the world because he wanted to give man a free choice. But the same God that let sin come into the world is the same God himself that came down and paid the price on Calvary's cross to take sin out therefore completely eradicating himself of any responsibility. And then I looked at him and said, you're moved, Doc. He didn't have anything to say. Free will. Free will. Free will. And uh, when man turned the lights out, God himself came down, turned the lights back on. Now, if you want to stay in a dark room and not move into the room of light, that's your decision. But don't go around saying, well, I'm in darkness because God put me in darkness or allowed the darkness and there is no light. No, no, no. He was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And last week we saw again, and boy, you want to catalog these and you want to build these. We saw key words for all of us last week. And the key word that was really important last week was the word reproof. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine first, for reproof second. Then, see, correction and instruction in righteousness. That when a man <coughs> rejects reproof, saved or lost, he can never be corrected, <coughs> nor can he be <coughs> instructed. See, he's got problems. I, I've told it to you many, many times when I quote that verse, the four keys to it. You know, it says that all scripture is given by inspiration and it's profitable. Doctrine, that's what's right. Reproof, that's what's wrong. <coughs> Correction, that's how to fix what's wrong. Instruction and righteousness, that's how to keep it fixed. <coughs> and without the first two we saw last week, you ain't going anywhere. But it all started by somebody looking at themselves and getting honest and then accepting the reproof through the truth. And then allowing reproof to correct it and then for us to instruct you and to help you keep it the way God wants it to be. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good work. Now the perfect there is not sinless perfection. If you read the verse, it's perfect unto all good works. In other words, God will use these things to perfect you for the work of God. That's the key. And all this will only come into our lives by, you know, um, the two great words that we saw last week that we ended with that uh, I think are really great words was the two words, doeth truth. It's not about, as I said last week, us having truth. It's not about us even claiming we believe the truth. It has nothing to do with us clamoring around that, talking about how much we love the truth. The real question is, do you do the truth? 
without picking and choosing what you want to believe. And boy, God's people are famous for that. Uh, not just having it or believing it, but doing what the book says in all areas and not just the ones we like. Now today, as I said, we're going to go back down again. So uh, you're going you're to get some things about your Bible and the book of John. Just, boy, as we walk through this, it just, there's no other way around it. And I want to lay out one of the great keys to understanding your Bible when you read it. Now you say, well, you say that almost every time. That's because how many, it may be one or two of you, but how many people here have a key ring with just one key on it? I know some of you are going to say, I got one. Well, get out of here then. I don't want to talk to you. (laughs) I know my key ring over here. Well, look at this one. See? Oh, there's some keys. Of course, I graduated from Yale. How many got that? A few of you, okay. Yale makes locks and keys, by the way. And I, I got a bunch of them. And those keys open up a bunch of things in my world. And there's not just one key to your Bible. There's a bunch of keys, and I guess... I would be very embarrassed if I were any Christian today that held up your spiritual key ring and only had one key on it. Man, you ought to make that key ring look like nothing. You ought to, you ought to have hundreds of keys on it because that's what it takes to unlock the Bible. And when you get all those keys down, it's just like, sadly, I don't know what all those keys are for because people that left the church turned their keys in. And I appreciate that, but I, I didn't write down what they were. But I know on my key ring here, this one here, I know what everything's for. I know where every key lock. I just look at it. Yeah, that's that key. Yeah, that's key. That's the way it has to come with your Bible. You have to get enough keys about your Bible, and then you need to understand how each key, what it unlocks. And once you get all worked out, then with the Bible, it all opens itself up because... You know, so you hear me say, this is one of the great keys. And some of you skeptics out there, you know, say, well, he always says that. This is another key. You're right. You're right. You're right. This is another key. And if you are a real Bible student, you're going to wind up with probably 100 keys on your key ring. And in time, you should know what every, each key opens up. So today, we're going we're gonna to do that. And I'm going to show you one of the key understanding aspects of the Word of God. And I'm going to show you today, and again, I'm not just interested in throwing it out to you. I want to show you how you make it work for you. We're going to look at how we use keywords to define a context. And then we're going to look at one of the great ways of opening up your Bible is by association. And you're going to learn uh, some great keys today. And when you put this key on your key ring... Uh, down the line someplace, you're going to have a bunch of them. And when it comes down to you studying the Bible, teaching the Bible, or just learning it yourself, you're going to know what every key is. Some of you got those little keys. I think there might even be one on here. I don't know. Some of you got that little keys. Oh, yeah. See, this one here. See how you can buy these at the key place? You put a little plastic blue thing on them. They make them different colors. See, that's just to help you know what key it's for. 
I bought a bunch of those and put them on my keys, but then at my age, I couldn't remember what color represented anything, so I just had a pretty little key ring. I took it all off because it kind of looked like a rainbow, and I didn't want to be associated with that. <laughs> go to go someplace, and a guy goes say, "Hi, that's a nice key ring," you know. <laughs> yes, it is. I'd just like to be slapped across the face with it, but anyway. So, you're going to learn some stuff today. Let's read our text today, John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. After these things came Jesus and his disciples unto the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing at Aon near Salem because there was much water there and they came there to be baptized. Wow. Well, that pretty much ends the debate about sprinkling, doesn't it? You ain't going to tell me that there wasn't canteens of water, bottled water in the grocery store that he could have got. Why is he baptizing there? Much water. You know why? Because baptism by immersion. See? Little things like that. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, Christ, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Now, if you don't have that marked in your Bible, in your little yellow marker, you want to mark that right now. We'll save it for later. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore is fulfilled. Uh, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. We ask you to walk us through this great uh, passage today. We love you. Thank you for all that you do for us. And we just pray now, Father, that in everything that uh, we endeavor to do, uh, that you take the honor and the glory and the praise. We love you. We thank you, Father, for uh, everything that you uh, have given us here. We thank you for the ones, Father, that you have brought into our church. Uh, we thank you for the ones that you've taken out of our church. And uh, we just pray, Father, that you'll always keep us as close to the book as we can and keep those people here that love the book and simply want to do with the truth. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, a couple of things here. First off, both John, just so you get the story here, both Jesus and John are baptizing. But I want you to know... Uh, Jesus himself never personally baptized anybody, and you get that from John chapter 4, verse 2. His disciples are baptizing for, for him. Now, verse 24 tells us that John is not in jail yet, and we know that a period of time in the future, uh, he ticks off Herod, and, uh, and then uh, he gets his head cut off. And then in verse 26 and 27, a question comes up on why both Jesus and John are baptizing, and obviously, if separately. And uh, 
in verse 27 and 28, John tells them that, that he's not the Christ, uh, that Christ is who he says he is, and he's a witness for him, but it's not him. He's just working and doing his work. And then in verse 29, he says, who am I? And here's what we're going to start with today. He says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Uh, and then he says, and so are you. And then a great verse in verse uh, 30, uh, which uh, you ought to uh, take to heart, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I want to talk to you today and lay out a major unknown piece of your Bible. We're going to put on your key ring today seven new keys. And maybe more than that, probably more than that, but seven major ones, seven big ones, and then some of them little ones like I got over here. When I grew up in the 60s and the 70s and got into the church and got into the ministry, uh, what I'm about to give you was standard operational procedure being taught in Bible-believing churches. It's all lost today. It's all gone with doctrine today and the loss of doctrine. The rise of the Laodicean church has buried so much truth with God's people. And our subject matter today, out of our text, will be developing an understanding of two concepts in the Bible. Same concept, two different names. One place is called the household of God. The other place is called the family of God. And I want to walk you through the Bible today for you to learn by association uh, some major uh, divisions in your Bible that we're going to see uh, by just using key words. Now, this study is a lot like the one uh, that I gave a couple of weeks ago on Second John, uh, the, uh, the two John 3.16s in the Bible. And I told you then that everybody had the idea and knew the first John 3.16. <laughs> Nobody knew anything about the second one. And this is a lot like that today. Because all of God's people think and know that we all are, because of the blood of Christ, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, uh, you know, and that is true. If you're saved here today, if you're a, in a spiritual sense, if you're, if you're a man, you're my brother in Christ. If you're a, a woman or a lady, you're my sister in Christ. And uh, that's why Paul looked at Timothy and uh, said that he's my son wasn't biologically, in the faith. Because it's a truth deal when, uh, when we get saved, you know, we, we become part of, of the church, which is Christ's body, and in a spiritual sense, we are part of that body and we are brothers, sisters in Christ because we're in that family of God. Now you're going to find, and the quicker you learn this, the better off you're going to be, you're going to find that in the world that we live in, there is what we call political correct correctness. Things you say and things you don't say anymore. Things that you can do and things that you cannot do anymore. And uh, the whole world now is being reshaped, or America is being reshaped uh, into a very small diagonal of political correctness. There's things now that you cannot say, do, places that you cannot frequent, people that you can't be associated with, or you get just, you know, you get labeled by the thing. But I want to tell you something. Don't ever think for a moment that in Christianity that there isn't a spiritual correctness in a political sense. 
that's just as screwy as the one in the world. God's people are forever uh, just, you know, trying to ratchet down people to the place where they squeeze you into the little bubble of what they think and what they, what they believe. Many pastors, and I'm not fighting this, many pastors, uh, if they, and I, I know guys that I'm friends with that do this, in their church, when they had a church, most of them lose it after a while, but in their church, when they look at their guys and their gals that win there, it's all brother and sister. And then when they see you, they'll say, hey, brother, how you doing? They'll say, hey, sister, how you doing? Uh, this is brother so-and-so, and this is sister so-and-so. And, uh, you know, uh, they'll get up and say, well, brother so-and-so did a really good job down there preaching last week. Uh, sister so-and-so really did a great job down there dealing with the kids. And, and I'm okay with that. But I understand why those guys do that. You see, most Baptist preachers, they want to keep a little distance between them and you. Uh, you won't find very many churches, Baptist churches, or even evangelical churches where you can go to that you could ever call the pastor by his first name. And he would never call you by you. You'd be brother or sister. And I understand that, and I don't have a problem with that. Now, some people like to call me Pastor Bob, and I don't, I don't have a problem with that, but i got to be honest with you. When you say, Pastor, I look behind me to see who just showed up. <clears throat> uh, but I understand that, and I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't. But I know most, most Baptist preachers want to keep a little distance between their people. You would never be able to get most Baptist pastors' cell phone numbers. You've got to go through his personal secretary, uh, much like uh, when Adolf Hitler was in power. He had Martin Bormann, and if you wanted to see the Fuhrer, you had to go through Martin Bormer, making Martin Bormann the guy who kept access or no access to the Fuhrer, which made him the most powerful man in the Third Reich. And boy, there's power in that when you have a, a woman or a man who has control of who gets to see your pastor. You can't just pick up your phone and call him because that's inappropriate. Well, you can't call the pastor. You just, you just, you just, you just can't call the pastor. And uh, it's a thing. I, uh, one of the Brackeen girls used to work at the uh, Scooters, and I like Scooters coffee. I go there, you know, to just scoot through Scooters and get you some coffee. <clears throat> and and uh, and Amanda was where was Amanda? Lauren. Lauren worked there, and. <clears throat> You know, she would work there, and I'd go through, and we'd talk, and I'd say, I'll see you tonight. She'd say, hi, Bob, and I'd say, hi, Lauren. And she told me afterwards, or maybe her mom did, that those girls were just flabbergasted that you could call your pastor by his first name. You know, that he would even talk to you. Because this is the world that you live in, in Christianity. Wherever pastors got the idea that because they have a title or because they are some status, that that makes them more spiritual than you, that's just not true. And you don't, you don't get respect by putting a title on your name. And, of course, this is the way it works today. And uh, so it's, hello, brother, hello, sister, hello, mother, hello, father, here we are at Camp Shinado. You know how that thing goes. And it's a thing where uh, it, it, it's, it, it's just the political correctness of it. And, of course, you know, I, I'm one who I don't look at myself any better than you. I'm Bob, you're whoever you are. And, uh, you know, I can't be responsible that God made me better looking than he did you. Don't even go there. But it's a thing where we're one in this, see? And I don't think that diminishes my respect because you call me, or you can call me on my cell phone. 
You know, it's a thing where uh, that's what my job is. Uh, you know, in Christianity today, it's a thing where, you know, this idea about the family of God, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that's really all the farther it ever goes because that's where they're deaf. But from the Bible's standpoint, much more to it than that. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I need to say this <clears throat> and allow me to be clear. What I'm about to lay out for you uh, uh, is from Scripture will be totally rejected by the modern-day Christianity today. Uh, <clears throat> to them, this is all heresy because they don't have a Bible, they don't believe the Bible, <clears throat> and they're just as, you know, they're just uh, a long, this is just a long list of truth that 100 years ago everybody believed and taught, but nobody even knows anything about today. And uh, I was talking to a pastor this week, and we were, he was amazed at how these churches, the guys that once, you know, were solid guys and claimed to believe the book, and now they're into some of those ungodly mess stuff in their churches that, that mirror the world that you ever saw. And he actually, and he's a good guy, he actually, you know, was scratching his head saying, I, I just don't know, you know, how that can happen. And, I, and, I, and, I, and to me, that's the most simplest answer on the planet. And I told him, I said, you know what happens? When you lose God's mind, you lose your mind. And then you do all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, how hard is that? And it's a thing where, you know, Baptist and the Neo guys, they will reject any or any of this because uh, uh, they just, that's just where they're at today. But you got to keep in mind that these are the same guys that threw out the Bible a long time ago, and they don't believe the Bible you have in your lap is any good either. And I would say after almost 50 years of dealing with them and talking with them and seeing them and all the goofy stuff they do, I would say that they, and I would tell them that they're faced, they all have one thing in common, and that is the fact that they all brace stupidity like it was some kind of virtue. Because the truth is truth. And as most truth today, it's only heresy till you sit down with them, which will never happen, and open up the Bible and shed some light on the subject. And then, you know, but that ain't ever going to happen. They threw out the Bible a long time ago. Okay, first off, I want you to look at a couple of places. The family of God in a real biblical sense. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Now watch this. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now he's talking to the church. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye, here's the church, also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. You know what he just told you there? He told you that the family of God runs from Genesis with the prophets and the and the, uh, and, the, uh, uh, and the apostles. That's all before the church age. Then he tells you that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone in verse 20 of this house of God, this building. And through this building, the house of God, it becomes fitly framed. What does? All the members of it. 
And then in verse 22, he says, in whom ye also, see, are built together with them. Now look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. You'll see another verse. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom, here it comes, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Wow. That verse says that some of the family are already up in heaven and some of them are still on earth. The other verse told you that it started with the, it started with the foundation, started with the apostles and the prophets, and then Jesus Christ, when he showed up, he became the chief cornerstone, and then in whom all the buildings fitly framed together uh, make a temple of the Lord, and then that you and I are also part of it. Now this is the house, just to make things clear for you, this is the house that Jesus was referring to in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And traditionally, the standard teaching on John chapter 14, well, let's read it. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Commonly taught, you got a mansion in heaven, folks. Commonly taught that, you know what, when God went back to heaven, he went back specifically to build your mansion. I heard a preacher say one time, you know what, God's been building my mansion for over 2,000 years. What a place that must be. And he said that like he had just said something. To which I would say, you don't have any mansion. You don't need a mansion. If you understood the Bible and God's plan for you, the church, uh, the last thing you want to be doing is hanging out in a mansion like you, Hefter. You don't need a mansion. God's got something better than that for you, see? But that's where it's at. Hey, traditionally, and we've been to funerals before where I didn't do the funeral or none of us did it, and some uh, guy did it up there, and this will be a standard funeral text, you know. It's a standard funeral text that, uh, you know, that God's going to come back and, you know, all this stuff. And, and uh, you look, and I just sit there, you know, you look at me and, I said, you know, but we all get it. Uh, this, John chapter 14 has absolutely nothing to do remotely with the church, the body of Christ, or the church age. And the key verses on this passage would be Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 10, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, John chapter 14, verse 16 through 19, and uh, other places in there, which I'm not going to take time to get into, but uh, if you would study it out, you would see that Unfortunately, John chapter 14, when he wrote this, there was no church in effect for him to write it to. There wasn't one New Testament Christian anywhere in, the, in it within 100 million light years of it. And it's not to us. But it's a great passage showing you God's plan when God's house and who God's house is. And of course, you read Revelation 21, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, and Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, and you will see how there's nothing here in John 14 can be remotely connected to the church. Now, but there's a house here that we want to look at. There's a household of God. There's a family of God we want to talk about. Now, let's lay this out for you and get ready here. Uh, we're going to start with what we have already learned, and then we're going to build on it. And I've told you before, this is what we do here. I have taught you already that there are two key days that the Bible is built around. One of them is the day of the Lord, 
That's when second coming of Christ, when God comes back and restores his wife, Israel. And I've laid this out, uh, and uh, you should have had all this material down now. It should be in your Bible. This is what Isaiah chapter 28, verse 13 talks about, how you teach people doctrine, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. You build a systematic study of the material you get. And then Thursday night, here a little, institute, here a little, there a little, and you, you build it that way. Building line upon line and precept upon precept. The second day will be the day of Jesus Christ. And of course, we know this to be the rapture of the church. Two days. One of them is God's days, and one of them is Christ's day. And this will be a reference to Christ getting his bride, the church, and the marriage that will take place, and we've laid all this out, and then uh, the marriage supper that will follow that we've laid all this out for you, and you should have all that stuff now. So this ought to make what I'm giving you a lot easier. The reason why some of you will still go out here scratching your head is because you don't get down what you need to get. You know, or you should have, uh, those uh, in your Bible. And uh, it should be easier for you today because we're just building on what we've already laid down. But for God and His Son, the main event will be this wedding of His Son. That's the whole Bible built around these two days. And in these two days, as Christ comes back, He gets His wife restored Israel. Christ gets the church, His bride. And then there is a wedding. Everything in that Bible points toward that wedding. And if you look at the book of Song of Sodom, it's filled with it. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10, we'll look at in a little bit, all through there. Revelation chapter 19, we'll get there in a little bit. 1 through 9, it's all there. Matthew chapter 22, we'll get there in a little bit, it's all there. Luke chapter 12, verse 36, those are the references that you want to look up to, to study this thing, but I already gave them to you. And at this wedding, at this wedding will be the household and the family of God. This wedding for his son is just like any wedding that you've ever been to. In fact, most weddings today that you go to, weddings have changed a lot. Funerals have changed a lot. The coronavirus put a change and damper all this thing. And then just to break down a society, you know. Uh, weddings for many, 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 many years uh, were very symbolic of, of you know, of Christianity. And of course, you know, and of course, you know this that uh, you know what uh, what makes you married is not a marriage ceremony. Uh, it's that has nothing to do with it. You have to have that ceremony because the state says you have to have that. But somebody a long time ago, and I know where weddings come in and wedding rings and all that stuff comes in with Constantine. I get that, 300 A.D. Somewhere along the line, God's people knew they had to fulfill the state requirement. So, hey, I'm not, I think it's a good idea. They wanted to, they wanted to make it a picture for a witnessing to people uh, when they got married. And I like that. So they got married in the church. Now, if you didn't get married in the church, it doesn't matter. I knew a couple of, that were, bi, were marine biologists that got married in a swamp. Mosquitoes were a little thick, but it was Okay. It, 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 but I'm just saying, this is the typical thing. You get married in the church. The bride, she always wore white because she, in a biblical sense, she's to be a virgin and that symbolized her purity. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. You had a bridegroom and uh, he, uh, you know, he would represent Christ. And if you know, uh, in, you can't always do this, but in many churches, this, this is the standard way it's supposed to go. There's all kinds of variations. 
he'd come down, he'd have all, all the men in the party and all the people in the party and then all the guests. And he'd stand down there and uh, he, he wasn't supposed to see, this is old time stuff, she, he wasn't supposed to see his bride the day of the wedding. How many knew that? Well, you see all you older folks. You young folks don't care. You're out playing miniature golf two minutes before you get married. But in the old days, traditional marriages, they didn't see each other. And it's a thing where, uh, and that's because that represented the church age. He's a picture of Christ. She's a picture of the church. And the church age, he doesn't see her. And, you know, when they get down there, uh, you know, and standing down the front, and then somebody started playing on the organ, here comes the bride, and... <coughs> She enters in the back door, you know, with her big flowing gown on, with her attendants, and everybody comes down, and then lastly she comes down. And, uh, you know, and uh, they start playing Here Comes the Bride. He's standing there, and this is the first time he sees her, and she comes to him. That's a picture, whoever put this together, that's a picture of the church coming to Christ, you see. And then afterwards, you all go out and get drunk and have chicken, and the whole thing falls to pieces. But that's the way it's supposed to go, see. And it's a thing where, um, you know, you have a best man, you have attendance at the wedding, and uh, I get it. This is, and then afterwards, you have a wedding supper or whatever, just like the Bible. I mean, that's whoever put that together wanted it to picture something out of Ephesians to give some kind of testimony to the world, and I, I get that. I get it. And at, at God's wedding uh, for his son, there will be people in attendance just like any wedding you ever went to. And everybody that has been saved from the Genesis all the way up to uh, the millennium will be at that wedding. And in this wedding, there will be seven distinct people groups that come to this wedding. And they represent the Bible from Genesis through a dispensation up to uh, the book of Revelation into the millennium. Most people, when you read your Bible, you banged into these places and read it and didn't even know for sure what you were reading. Places like Song of Sodom in chapter 6, verse 8 through 10, talks about the wedding. But if you didn't know what I'm saying, you may not pick up on it. Psalms chapter 45, oh, there's a great one. But if you didn't know what I'm giving you, you wouldn't figure that out. Matthew chapter 25, we'll get there in a little bit. Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 9. Uh, they're 19, they're all places that show you that. These seven family members will fit into the different dispensations that run, and we know there's approximately 11 dispensations from Genesis right up into eternity. And when the wedding takes place, this is the household of God. This is the family of God, not just me and you. We're a very small part of that. In fact, you're the bride. Now, I'm going to walk you through this. I'm going to lay this out for you and walk you back through the scriptures to show you how those things work. And if you pay attention today, you're going to get through association and key words one of the greatest keys of understanding the overall Bible and how it goes into place that you can fit in someplace else. All right. Let's talk quickly first about the bridegroom. Now we know, and I'm going to tell you who that is in each one of these, then I'm going to go back and show you. We know the bridegroom is Christ. <coughs> Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 7 uh, says that, uh, you know, this is the marriage of the Lamb. 
We just saw it in John with John the Baptist that said that Christ was the bridegroom. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Paul says, I have espoused you, talking to you and me, the church, I have espoused you to one husband, that's Christ, that I may present you a chaste virgin unto Christ. Now, if you don't have that marked, the word chaste virgin, mark it in yellow in your Bible right now. You'll want to do that. We'll come back. In the book of Ephesians, the great chapter that everybody, when they get married, the pastor, well, he used to read out of now. Now they make up little goofy stuff. But it used to be Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and 33, the greatest passage in the New Testament <coughs> on marriage, showing you that an earthly marriage between men and women is a picture of the heavenly marriage between Christ and his church. Verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives, ah, even as Christ loved the church, you see? Then he says in verse 32, this marriage is a great mystery. All the things that he talked about, but I speak, here's the example, I speak concerning Christ and his church. Clearly telling us that, that not only is our earthly marriage based on, should be based on the heavenly one, but that Christ is the bridegroom. And uh, in the Bible, you will find <coughs> that there are seven mysteries to the church. Twelve to Israel, seven to the church, and one of them is this mystery right here. And we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, that we are to be stewards of these mysteries, and we should be teaching our people <coughs> these very same things that I'm giving you today. So we know the bridegroom is Christ. All right, now let's look at the bride. And the bride will be every one of you here today who's saved, the church, the body of Christ, you and me. Now, we've already seen Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and 33, so we don't have to go back there again. It puts it all together. But look at over at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's read the first three verses here. It said, Would to God you would bear with me in my folly, and indeed bear with me. <clears throat> For I am jealous over you. This is Paul writing to the church. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you, that is to be engaged or be married, I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, you already should have chaste virgin marked in there, but if you don't, this is your second and last opportunity. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, that in itself is an incredible passage. But I want you to note the key word there, and this is the first word, and most of you, I know you already know this, is the word virgin. Wherever you find the word virgin singular in your Bible, watch it very carefully. Almost without exception, every time you're going to find it being a reference to the church. It may be in a story about a woman that is a virgin, then you'll want to look at that story because she probably represents a picture of the church. The church is likened to a chaste virgin, singular. Now, this shows you the connection last week of Adam and Christ and Eve and the church. Adam's a type of Christ. Eve's a type of the church. Devil showed up when Eve wasn't there, picture of the church age. He corrupted her from the simplicity, and we laid that all out. And uh, you, you, I want you to see here that the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the thing that the devil does to the church today is he corrupts the church from the simplicity that is in Christ. 
And this is why most churches want to make the Bible hard, Christianity hard, and that's why they get out of the Bible because they want to control you through it instead of letting the Bible control you. And the bottom line is, it's the simplicity of Christ. Then look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, 8, and 9. It says there, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that he should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now we see here very clearly that you and I, the church, is the bride. Add with that, you know, uh, uh, the book of Song of Solomon, and it just, it just, it's an, it's an incredible deal. Now, so we now know that our first two members of the family, which are going to show up at the wedding, part of the household of God, the family of God, is the bridegroom, we now know him as Christ, and the bride. Now that is you and me, the church. Now look at the last part of Revelation 19 and verse 9. And he said unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now we are going to look at the next people groups who are called to this marriage. We're going to look now at the guest list. Well, we've identified the first two, the bride and the bridegroom. Now let's start to look at this. Let's go back to John chapter 3, verse 29, and we'll start there and work our way back or up or down or inside out. I don't care. But we'll start there. We've got the first two clearly defined. The next one here uh, will be John chapter 3, verse 29. And John calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. That would make him the best man at this wedding. And he says, not only me, but everybody who's hearing what he says. So that would put it in a larger framework than just John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going to represent for us a dispensation of people that are going to show up at this wedding under the title of the friend of the bridegroom. Now let's see who they are. We all know that John is the pivot point for this. Let's see what the Bible says about this. Now let me show you how the Bible interprets itself. You don't have to make anything up. You just stick with the book. And I want to show you how you see John, a friend of the bridegroom, will represent a dispensation of people. And I'll go ahead and tell you right now, the friend of the bridegroom group will start with Moses and run all the way up to John the Baptist. Everybody under the law will be the part of the family that goes to the wedding under the title of the friend of the bridegroom. Say, where do you get that? It's a conspiracy. They hide things like this in the Bible. Turn over to Luke chapter 16. which unfortunately was where we'll be next week. Because the letter from hell message is out of Luke chapter 16. If I can find it, I'll probably do it from memory. 
shoot, I'll just do it like I do every day out and make it up as I go along. Anyway, Luke chapter 16, verse 16. Now watch. This is how you learn. Watch how the Bible interprets itself. We just saw where John was called the friend of the bridegroom, and he said, it's not just me, it's everybody who has heard him. Now watch how the Bible defines who this dispensation of people are. Now watch. Luke chapter 16, verse 16. If you don't have this marked and tied back to John chapter 3, verse 29, do it now. Here's what he says. For the law, Moses, and the prophets under the law were under John. Now you see that? If John's a friend of the bridegroom and the people hearing his voice uh, are, are, are in that part of that family, then you just were told that the law and the prophets end with John that he represents that, so these people here will be in the family of God, the friends of the bridegroom. Now look what he says. For the law and the prophets were under John since that time, the time of John, representing the under the law, the kingdom of God is preached to every man presseth into it. That's the church age which comes into effect after John and the law. The law is represented by Moses. The prophets is represented by the Old Testament. And John is the end of the law. So he represents that dispensation under Moses up to John, which we now know is the friend of the bridegroom. And they will show up at the wedding. So the friend of the bridegroom will be the people from Moses up to John. Now see how easy that was? I mean, that wasn't complicated at all. You get one little piece here, and then you get the keys, and then you turn the lock, it opens up, you go to Luke 16, 16, voila. Now let's look at the fourth group going to be here. And for this one, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 25. Now, I know this is more of a good, it's a, it's, you know how you learn. it's a Bible study today more than anybody, but wait till next week. You say, well, you didn't preach today. That's because I was saving it all up to dump it on you next week for Ashtar Day. So you want to get your Ashtar bonnet with all your frills of bonnet and bring your Ashtar to the Ashtar service next week, which is sunrise service at 1030. Now, our fourth here will be virgins, plural. That is the word virgin with an S on the end, where virgin singular is one, virgin's plural is more than one. Now, I know you knew that. First law of public speaking is never speak down to your audience. Some of you idiots don't understand that, so I'm trying to help you here. <laughs> virgins. Now, let's read it, and I'll we'll walk through this thing. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins... Mark it in your Bible in yellow right now as we're reading it. Which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Notice they're not going to marry him. They're going to meet him. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. They were, that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps while the bridegroom tarried. Mark bridegroom in yellow. They all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, 
the bridegroom cometh, mark it in yellow, go ye out to meet him. Notice, meet him, no mention of marrying him. Then all those virgins, mark it in yellow, arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, here it comes, the bridegroom, mark it in yellow, came, and they were ready, went with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterwards, there came also other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. But he, but he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Verse 13, Watch ye therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Now, traditionally, by idiots who know nothing about the Bible, this passage is used to prove you can lose your salvation. These ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, are a picture of Ten people who lost the oil, oil being a type of the Holy Spirit of God. So, oh, oh, this is a proof place where you can lose your salvation. Let me show you how that every word of the Bible is important. The word virgin, singularly, will always reference the church. The words virgins, plurally, will always represent the tribulation Jews. This is a tribulation passage. It has nothing to do with the Jews. Look down at the last verse. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. The Son of Man is never used in reference to the church, only Israel. Notice, if you're paying attention, and Matthew chapter 25 was one of the most mistaught places in all the Bible. Typically taught that, as I said, you can lose your salvation. Nothing to do with the church age. This is a tribulation passage aimed at the Jews in the tribulations. And the key word in verse 1, if you're reading it, would immediately set the context would be virgins, plural. Anytime you find it, anywhere in the Bible, it'll be a reference to the tribulation Jews in the tribulation period. Virgin singular is the church. Virgins, plural, the tribulation Jews. And uh, you miss that one, and you'll probably wind up in the lake of fire. If that wasn't enough, verse 10 says that they go to get oil, a uh, Holy Spirit of God, buy it. And somebody says, well, how do you buy the Holy Spirit of God? Oh, it's found in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, but you don't know anything about the Bible. I mean, it says there, down there, it says there were ten virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. We just studied the book of Proverbs that was about a wise man and a foolish man. Verse 10 says, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. I showed you in John chapter 14. He says, I will come again. Second coming. And those that are ready go to the wedding with him. But there's no mention of them ever marrying him. They go to meet him and they go with him to the marriage, but they don't marry him because they are part of the family of God, the household that's going to head to this wedding of the bride and the bridegroom. And along with them are going to be the friends of the bridegroom, and now we have the virgins. Now let's look at our next group. 
And these groups, this people, will be called guests. And these will be Gentiles who get saved in the tribulation period. And for this, we want to go to Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 10. I'll read it. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a a what? A marriage for his son. Mark it in yellow. And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Mark it in yellow. And they would not come. Verse 4. Again. He sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen or my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their way. Mark there, come unto the wedding. Mark that in yellow. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Uh, And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and he destroyed those murderers, and burned up the city. Verse 8, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, mark it in yellow, uh, but they which were burdened were not worthy. Somebody didn't want to come. Go ye therefore into the highways, as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage, mark it in yellow. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found both bad and good, and the wedding, mark it in yellow, was furnished with guests, mark it in yellow. Now, put your yellow pencil down and get your red one out. Let me break this passage down before I really get into it here, but I'll just give you this. It's free today. Take your red pen, your red grease pen, don't use a regular pen, or your grease pen, and draw a line between verse 3 and verse 4. Just a straight line across that. And then take your red pen and draw another line between verse 7 and verse 8. Now what you have here, and the reason why I divided them out, is because he's splitting this up, showing you, showing you what has happened here. He's showing you the whole breakdown. Verses 1, 2, and 3 will be the Old Testament. We know them as friend of the bridegroom, except during the law. Verse 4, so you want to put a split there, 4, 5, and 6, and 7 will represent the time when Christ shows up at the first coming of Christ. And then you want to put a red line between 7 and 8. And in verse 8, he says, Then saith he to his servants, he jumps right into the tribulation period. Never deals with the church age because it's not prevalent. So the first three verses deal with the Old Testament uh, before Christ shows up. 4, 5, and 6 deal with it after he shows up. And then verse 8 deals with it uh, in the tribulation period. And uh, he says that now he's going to send out uh, people who are going to gather the Gentiles in and they're going to make up the guests. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know, in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, Moses and Elijah show up. 
And Moses and Elijah lead a great evangelistic crusade found in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14 where 144,000 Jewish <coughs> virgins go proselyte the Gentiles. And this is what he's saying in verse t- chapter 22, verses 8, 9, and 10. Everybody before that, the other families, they rejected it. But now in the tribulation, it's furnished with guests. These were with tribulation Gentiles that the Jewish evangelist, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, will go into and evangelize and fill this wedding with guests, which are now Gentile tribulation saints. It's going to be quite a wedding. And at the second coming of Christ, down through there, he says, So those servants went out on the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. These will be the tribulation Gentiles, which are brought in by the tribulation Jews, who are the virgins, two distinct groups. But they both show up at the wedding. Now, our sixth one. And you can get down, you can see where we're just going through the process of elimination here. And it's going to be about association and, and, uh, and how that thing works. The sixth one will be what we call concubines. And the concubines will represent the people from Adam up to Moses before the law. Now, when you understand and you search it through the scriptures, you'll find that a concubine was a secondary wife. She was there to provide children if the wife was barren or in some cases if they needed more kids or whatever for whatever purpose. And you're going to find that it's most common before Moses and the law. You don't find it a lot after Moses and the law, though it's more prevalent up in the early men or patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that time period. You don't see it much and after the law comes in. Some of the kings like David and Solomon, they use that that right and take that, but you don't see it common like you did uh, before the law. So this group of people will fit into our household from Adam to Moses before the law. And you're going to note now that God allowed it because Uh, God allowed it, but he never sanctioned it. It's one of the allowances that he gave under the Old Testament strictness of the law, but it was never sanctioned as far as in, in almost every case where it had happened, it didn't turn out very well. And you'll find this, uh, you'll find this back in Song of Solomon, where it lists the concubines and it lists all these groups. You'll find it in Psalms chapter 45. Uh, all these places that you read through when you're reading your Bible, but you scratch your head and say, I wonder what this is. Well, now you should know. These are part of the household, the family of God that represent the dispensations or the different dispensations from Genesis to Revelation. So now we have the concubines. We got that group covered. Now there's only one group left, and this will be the queens, and you will find this in places in the Bible. And the place that we want to look at this is found in 1 Kings chapter 10, so you want to turn back there. And the queens will represent 
the millennial saints, the people in the millennium that are made up of all the nations that are left that you'll find in Zechariah chapter 14 and in many other places. And they're called the queens. And this is based on the association and the name that you find in the story of 1 Kings chapter 10 when the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon on the throne. Bear with me. Let me read it first. Chapter 10, verse 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train and camels that bear spices and much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him uh, of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions, and there was nothing hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba uh, had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sittings of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in my own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit, I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices very great store and precious stones. And there came no more such abundance of the spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Haram, uh, which brought for gold from Ophar, brought it from Ophar, great plenty among unguent trees and precious stones. And the king made all of the unguent trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps also, psalmstries and for singers. And there came such almond trees that were never seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country uh, and her servants. Now what you have here, is a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. If you know anything about your Bible, you know that David and Solomon are at the apex of the nation of Israel at the height of their glory. Two different men accomplished two different things. The reason why David was never allowed to build the temple is because David is a type of Christ at the second coming of Christ, and he has to wipe out all the enemies like Christ will do at the second coming. David reigns for 40 years, and in that 40-year time period, he wipes out every last nation that is an enemy of the nation of Israel. And as a type of Christ, David is a type of Christ at the second coming who takes out the opposition. Once he off the throne, Solomon comes in, he reigns for 40 years, and Solomon is a type of Christ in the millennium after David wipes out the enemies, and for 40 years... You have peace in the land and the queens and the kings of all the earth 
are coming into Jerusalem to see the glory of God through Solomon and his kingdom and the nation of Israel. And this Queen of Sheba coming in is a picture of this group of people in the millennium who are going to come in. Zechariah chapter 14 tells that, that the nations are going to go into Jerusalem just like she did, that kings and queens and potentates are going to go in every year. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3 says, During the millennium, And the Gentiles shall come into thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Revelation 21 verse 24 says, And the nations of them, them which are saved in the millennium, after the second coming, Zechariah 14 dictates who they are. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And this group is the millennial saints of the nations that are in the millennium after the second coming of Christ, and they're represented by the Queen of Sheba in the story of association that pictures the Gentile kings coming in under Solomon, picture of the millennial reign under Christ, to sing all the glory of God's kingdom. Now this great wedding that God has built the Bible around, this great wedding is going to be for the whole family of God, the whole household of God. It isn't going to be just me and you because we're the bride. But in that wedding, when you go back to Psalms 45 and you go back to Song of Solomon and you go back to the other places in the Bible, you see all these people groups at this wedding. And this is the great wedding that is illustrated in the Bible that uh, will be Christ getting his bride and everybody from Genesis up to the millennium being part in attendance of that wedding. And you know what? I gave you today the guest list. But I want you to know today that the guests, the invitations are still being sent out. Because God still wants to have you be part of his body and become part of be his bride. And in the tribulation period, he's going to reach those tribulation saints, the virgins, and he's going to reach the Gentiles, the guests, and in the millennium, he's going to reach that crowd. So it's an ongoing thing, but it's all based about, as I've showed you many, many times, a certain king made a wedding for his son. And you're the bride. He's the bridegroom. And now you have the complete keys from Genesis to Revelation about every dispensational people group. And now when you read the friend of the bridegroom or the queens or the concubines or the guests, now you'll know what those words mean in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 24, there's a great story, an incredible picture. When the old path boys sing up here, I always give them static because I always want them to sing the camel train. The Camel Train is probably my favorite song. I heard it years and years and years ago, Harold Massey and, and, uh, and Darlene and, and all those, you know, they used to, and uh, what was uh, Charlie, Char what's Charlie's last name? Van Zant. Van Zant. yeah, they all, they got, that's where I first heard it, and I just fell in love with it. When I'm dead and gone, I want you guys to sing the Camel Train. I won't be able to hear it, but I just want you to do it anyhow. That is my favorite song. 
And I give those guys grief all the time. I mean, I know they like to sing different songs. As far as I'm concerned, you just sing that one. We got three songs. Okay, boys, what is it? Well, the first one's the camel train. Amen. What's the second one? Camel train. <laughs> Amen. What's the third one? Camel train. I'm in, boys. Let's go. I love that song. Now, because in, the, in that story in Genesis chapter 24, here's what you got. You got Abraham, who's a type of God the Father. And then you have his chief servant, whose name is Eleazar, and he's a type of the Holy Spirit of God. You'll find him defined in Genesis 15, verse 2. Then you have Isaac, that's his son, who is a type of Christ. And what Abraham, a type of God the Father, does is he calls Eleazar, type of the Holy Spirit, and he says, go get my son, Isaac, a type of Christ, find him a bride. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of right now. Holy Spirit of God, Eleazar, searching out you to be part of the bride of Christ. And so in that story, oh, it's a great story. We break it down because in an inspirational aspect, there's 19 principles there of finding the right husband or wife. This is where you want to go. You don't want to go to Christian single dingle, uh, you know, dot com or the Christian meat market dot com. You want to you want to get into Genesis chapter 24. It lists out 19 absolute things you want to look for in a husband and in a wife. It's an incredible thing. And we went through. I think there's a book on it back there. We, we, we've done it many, many times. And, you know, and it's a thing where you have Rebecca. Rebecca is the bride that they find for Isaac. Lo and behold, Rebecca is not a Jew. Rebecca's a Gentile. And that whole story is a beautiful picture of how you came to Christ. How we came to Christ as Gentiles. And now, because Eleazar, the Holy Spirit, brought us to Christ, one of these days we're going to be married to him. And like every fairy tale that is nothing more than a fairy tale, the truest story in the Bible is, yes, we will live happily ever after. And it's a great story. It really is. And, uh, you know, it's it, the importance. And I love it. Oh, get ready. The evening shadows fall. Can't you hear Eleazar's call? There's going to be a wedding. My joy will soon be full in the evening when the camel train comes in. Boy, there's coming a day, boy, when that camel train's going to come in. And we're all going to go home to be with him. We're going to a wedding. And we got the best part because we're going to get married to him. Everybody else is going to be in attendance at the wedding and glorifying it. But it's you and me that get to be part of that wedding. And now you learn all this, you see, today and understand the importance of keeping key words exact. There is not, and this is why, you know, and this is why the most Baptists and the neo-evangelical crowd and just about everybody else out there could never, ever figure this out. You know why? Because their Bibles destroy all those words. Those Bibles are corrupt. They don't, they don't take into account that God wrote the book just the way he wanted it, preserved it for you uh, for over 400 years, and it doesn't need to be changed one spot it, because when you do, you lose everything out of it. No other Bible could lay it all out uh, because they change all of the verses. They change the words. There's no chain of evidence or references that you can follow through everything. And this is why all I did today 
and giving you the shever. I never went to the Greek one time. I never went to the Hebrew one time. All I did was just take the simple little words out of the Bible. Because remember, that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to destroy in Christianity the simplicity that's in Christ. So he gives them a Bible that takes out all the key words, and now you've got to be super spiritual. You've got to run to the Greek or the Hebrew. You've got to get a college degree in Bible. You've got to go to theology school. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. No, you don't. All you have to do is just to believe the book that God gave you in fourth grade English, and you'll get everything you need. Well, we'll hold up there next week, Easter. We'll keep